We have a great interview uh, conducted by myself and Lawrence, who you will know as the host of Wednesday's post-grad show in this 10 to noon spectrum slot. We spoke with the author Lori Calhoun, uh, who was here visiting the Peace and Conflict Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the university last week. Okay, so we are speaking with Lori Calhoun, uh, the author of the recently launched book, We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age. She's here as a guest of the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies uh, to launch the book, which is a uh, moral and philosophical critique of the new phenomenon of targeted killings with drones. What can you tell us about this uh, emerging phenomenon? Well, it's really taking off, and it started as a means of killing used only by Israel and the United States. But right now, as the drone industry boom is taking off, lethal drones are spreading around the globe. So it's really important that we have a public debate about whether we should be doing this um, or not, because we never had that debate. Um, the industry is now driving the dynamics of the spread of the drones, and we haven't had that debate. Now, you mentioned um, that it started off as a practice only used by Israel and the United States. Um, can you give us a little bit of a chronology of the history of um, yeah, the idea of drone assassination? Uh, we know a lot of countries possess drones um, in the sense of unmanned aerial vehicles, but, but lethal drones uh, that can be used for a strike operation is something different. Lay out for us the chronology of, of how that's developed over the past couple of decades and, and maybe paint for us a picture of the near future. Uh, who else has these lethal drones? Who wants them? And who is um, attempting to use the legal justifications that have been established by the U.S. and Israel to uh, conduct their own lethal drone operations? Sure. In my view, the drone age, as I call it, began on November 3rd, 2002. That was the day that the CIA assassinated six men driving in a car down a road in Yemen. And it was initially conceived as a covert operation, but then, uh, what was his title? Paul Wolfowitz, Assistant uh, Secretary of Defense, sort of vaunted that they had done this. And then it became public that the CIA had done it and it wasn't actually an accident or whatever the, the cover story was supposed to be. So what happened is there was a lot of acclaim for this action in the press. The press did not criticize, they didn't really balk about it at all. And so it turned out to be a real political success. And after that, drone strikes were conducted more and more frequently, although they still weren't talked about. Um, and during when when Barack Obama came into the presidency, he vastly expanded the drone assassination program, but also still without talking about it. So no one talked about the program between November third, you know, no, November two thousand and two, and January two thousand and twelve, which was where Obama first stated publicly that he had been killing people with drones. In a Google chat talk, it was in the run-up to the president's presidential re-election campaign. And, you know, he reassured everyone 
there haven't been a lot of civilian casualties. Um, but it was a little shocking for everyone because he was admitting suddenly in public what no one else in the government would admit. Um, so what happened is during that period, lethal drone strikes became normalized, at least in the minds of the U.S. government. So it became um, a standard operating procedure, I would say. Now we're reaching a point where lots of other countries are able to purchase these drones, and some already have. Nigeria has lethal drones. Pakistan has their own lethal, lethal drones, whereas it used to be that the U.S. would conduct drone strikes in Pakistan. Now Pakistan has their own lethal drones. Both Nigeria and Pakistan have used lethal drones against their own citizens in their homeland. So um, there are a couple other points in the chronology which are very important. One was 2011, Obama authorized the assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki, a U.S. citizen. That was a real turning point for civil libertarians and lots of other folks. Um, I'm, you probably know about the Rand Paul filibuster. Yeah. Okay, so he was protesting the nomination of uh, John Brennan, the quote-unquote czar of, of uh, targeted killing to the directorship of the CIA. But his, his main complaint and uh, goal during that filibuster was to get the U.S. government to say that they could not assassinate Americans on American soil, which they finally did. They said that that, that would be a, um, something that the executive would not do. It took them a long time to get there, though. So they sort of hemmed and hawed and tried to avoid the question. But eventually they said that, no, we cannot actually kill Americans on American soil. Um, but that was a, a real turning point because, again, there were people who accepted it, even though it looks like summary execution without trial, and the case was very contentious. I don't know if you've read Jeremy Scahill's book, Dirty Wars. Yeah. Okay, so excellent book. Um, really uh, digs into the story of Al-Laki and also his son, who was killed yes. two weeks later, yes. um, which is also a, a mystery waiting to be solved, I think. People aren't really sure whether the son was intentionally targeted it kind of seems like he was but it seems fairly clear that he was from right and that's a little bit scary actually yes, because um, he hadn't actually committed any terrorism absolutely um so they i guess thought that he was potentially a terrorist you know since his dad had been taken out maybe he would uh, follow in his father's footsteps but even the case of anwar alaki is so sketchy and difficult to understand um, that I, it's still very controversial. Unfortunately, it's not that controversial to the general populace who were taken in by the press's account that he was a traitor and... Yeah, well, Al-Alaki um, essentially didn't commit any violent acts himself, but um, was engaging in, you know, very aggressive free speech. Right, exactly. Other troubling aspects of the Al-Alaki case are that he was imprisoned in Yemen for about a year and a half. Then he was released, and then he was hunted down and killed. So it looks like a case where you really can't, you really can't claim that it was infeasible to capture him because he had been captured. So it looks like he was let go and that, for the purpose of killing. Now, where does Israel fit into all this? Um, had they used lethal drone operations uh, for assassination prior to the United States? They or had. Did they, they had indeed. And they're it, kind of uh, some of the drivers of uh, the cutting edge of these technologies. Yes. 
yes to both questions. They had used drones in Gaza Strip to kill suspected terrorist Palestinians. Um, But they did it, well, they did it in Israel, right? They didn't do it 3,000 miles away. That's the big difference. That's why I I personally think that the drone age began when the CIA took out these people thousands of miles away. It wasn't um, a case where there was a direct threat to people on U.S. soil. Instead, they're, they're being um, killed, you know, far, far away. So. And in terms of, like, other countries now moving into the space, is it only Nigeria and Pakistan? No. Nope. Are there other people on the cusp? I mean, um, oh. it seems like the, the precedents that have been set would easily allow for sort of a questionable uh, human rights abusing dictatorship say Uzbekistan or something to just go wild with this. You don't have to go all the way to Uzbekistan. Um, how about uh, David Cameron? <laughs> David Cameron, the, the Prime Minister of, the, of Britain, recently killed two British nationals using lethal drones. So Britain also has lethal drones and now they're using them against British nationals. In a way it was in emulation of the Al-Awlaki assassination, I believe. The two people killed under the authorization of Cameron were, as I said, British nationals, but they were in Syria and considered to be, um, you know, propagandists for ISIL or ISIS, whichever you like. Um, so Britain has already done this, and it was only in late August, um, a couple months ago, they, they killed two people. Other British nationals had been killed by U.S. drones, but this was a turning point also in the chronology because now Britain is doing what the U.S. has done. Um, why is it even more shocking? Because capital punishment is is prohibited under British law except for, I believe, cases of treason. And I suppose that Cameron would say, oh, this guy's a traitor, just like everyone said about Al-Awlaki. But the problem is it's summary execution without trial. Even if you want to say he's a traitor, he was executed without trial. Um, India also has acquired lethal drones recently. Uh, They're really spreading all over the place. And, I mean, it's not... um it's not as hard to get as it once was. I mean, we've all seen the YouTube videos of guys uh, duct taping a handgun to their quadcopter. Right, um, right. Essentially. I oh, I got to show you these videos. <laughs> I think it was in Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Kentucky, though, I do have a question. This is more maybe theoretical or it's a devil's advocate question. Okay. If you talk to people um, in Kentucky, or not even Kentucky, do you know Bill Maher, the comedian? Yes. Mm -hmm. He said comments similar to this. He's like, well, why is this actually a problem for America? Because we can do these operations, we don't have any boots on the ground, Mm. we can kill the bad guys, we can can vaporize them. I think Bill Maher said we can vaporize them to shit or something, Mm -hmm. and who cares? Right. So people in Kentucky, the majority would say, yeah, who cares? We can do this. That's the prevailing view among the populace. People are like, well, if we can spare the lives of soldiers, why wouldn't we want to do that? Who wouldn't want to do that? It would be crazy to send a combat pilot when you can send a drone instead. Uh, The problem with that view is it only captures one perspective on what is being done, and that's the perspective of the killers. It completely omits any discussion of the people on the ground who are afflicted in new ways in the drone age. It's um, the collateral damage of drone warfare is low if you consider collateral damage as body count. So I call that first order collateral damage. The the number of civilians, non-combatants known to have been killed by drones ranges between several hundred and several thousand. That number even 
at the top looks pretty small compared to conflicts such as Vietnam, World War II, where millions of non-combatants were, were slain. So people look at those numbers and they say, what are you talking about? What's your problem? <laughs> so um, the real problem is that every time these lethal drones are used, everyone in the entire community is afflicted with, with what I call um, becomes what I call uh, second second order collateral damage or third order collateral damage. Second order collateral damage would be people who are left bereft, so they're the wives who lose their husbands, um, the, the children who lose their fathers, particularly in these tribal areas where men are the breadwinners, they're the providers for the family, so those people are devastated in one way. Um, but other people who haven't even lost a family member are devastated in the sense that they have lost their sense of security and safety. They're afraid that they might be killed next, and it makes it difficult for them to function in many cases. Um, so several NGOs and human rights groups have gone into these contexts and interviewed people and discovered that psychological ailments such as anxiety, fear, paranoia, are just as prevalent among the civilians who haven't lost a family member as they are among civilians who have lost a family member. So they're just as traumatized as the, as the bereft survivors. And these are very significant um, distinctions between drone warfare and previous forms of warfare for one reason because these wars are never declared and there's no ceasefire. So it, it goes on p potentially forever and um, once people have lived under lethal drones, they're never really sure that they're not going to be killed next. You mentioned the other side of the story. I mean, I guess the, the other thing that jumps immediately to mind is uh, the lack of due process, which in Western countries we're very familiar with and, um, you know, lots of things can, can look one way on the surface at a certain moment in time, but when you actually um, you know, deliberate over them and discuss them and, you know, argue with points of logic, which is what due process allows. Sometimes you can find things you didn't realize before or deeper meanings that um, influence the outcome of the case. Um, obviously, that's not an opportunity when you make the snap decision to press a button and kill. Well, that's absolutely right. And I'm glad you brought that up. The whole justice of the execution of even the people who are suspected to be terrorists is Suspected. Sus yeah. Exactly, that's the key word there. These are always suspected terrorists. They're sometimes called suspected militants or insurgents, but they're always suspects. Now, why is that significant? Because when you look at where the intel comes from, there are two main sources. One is human or human intelligence, which is largely derived from bribed informants. The other is SIGINT or signals intelligence, which is de derived from cell phones, SIM cards, um, also uh, drone footage. And the problem is both of these are highly fallible and they're frighteningly fallible in the case of people who are unnamed sus suspected terrorists who have been who have been fingered on the basis of, of these forms of intelligence and uh, and have no way of defending themselves from the charge that, oh, you are a terrorist. Um, it's all the more appalling when you know the stats on Guantanamo Bay, because in Guantanamo Bay, I'm sure you recall that during the Bush administration, they were very fond, the administrators were very fond of 
denigrating the detainees as the worst of the worst. That was what Donald Rumsfeld used to say about them. Well, now we know that 86% of those men were innocent. Mm. So, if the same sort of intel is being used for drone strikes as was used for Guantanamo Bay, we actually have some good grounds for believing that many of these quote-unquote suspected militants slain were themselves innocent. Probably over 50%. I would think so. Yeah. Um, and so the due process question is very, very important. When these people are slain, um, people in the populace, I think, assume, oh, they must be bad guys. Barack Obama's a good guy. I trust him. You know, he's not going to just go, you know, mm. whack people willy-nilly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that the intel uh, is very, very sketchy. It, wouldn't, it would not hold up in a court of law. It's all based on hearsay. Um, and circumstantial. Someone Those... texted their friend, wow, that was the bomb. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a documentary last night before, Lies, about uh, when America overthrew the government in Iraq in the 50s, I think it was 50s, and um, the Ba'ath Party came in and they had Saddam purge all these communists, but the list was completely out of date. It was a shocking list they gave oh, them, you know? yeah. And it's amazing that we still respect the intelligence services like we do. Like, oh, we still hold them, in, in American, we hold them in really high regard. Mm -hmm. And they're wrong a lot, wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> Have you read Timothy Weiner's Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA? No. No, it's Highly, online. highly recommend it. Put it on your to-read list. Okay. Legacy of Ashes. It was published in 2007, right after the disclosure of something like 40,000, or the declassification of something like 40,000 documents. It is a shocking book because yeah. you think, oh, CIA, good. Central Intelligence Agency. You read that book and you're like, why do we even have this organization? Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, it's <laughs> economic espionage on behalf of American corporations, is it not? Uh, that's not what's covered in the book. I mean, a lot of them were had, had good intentions to to protect the United States against communism, but basically it's it's like a string of debacle after debacle after debacle. Yeah. And we, we know this now, the, the whole torture program, for example. So the the people who ran the torture program, one of them is John Brennan. He's now the, the director of the CIA. They, they didn't prosecute the torturers. Um, instead, they promote John Brennan to be the director, and now he's, he's running this uh, targeted killing program, which in some ways is more frightening, I think. One, one thing that I'm really interested in is, um, you know, uh, recently we've seen people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking issue warnings about um, the potential for artificial intelligence to sort of overtake mankind. Right. And uh, the post-apocalyptic action movies that I grew up with um, always took, you know, lethal robots combined with artificial intelligence and that was what was going to be uh, the end of mankind as we know it. Uh, with these sort of uh, prominent technologists increasing calls, um, you know, about the dangers of advanced artificial intelligence, uh, how do you see this overlapping with the drone dilemma, given that uh, lethal drones combine exactly these robotic killing technologies and advanced artificial intelligence? Yes, a lot of concern has been expressed about the potential for robots, you know, taking over and destroying human civilization. 
probably it arises in part from the Terminator movies. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, RoboCop. Um, I always think of RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, RoboCop. I just read. I just, sorry, I just watched the new one, 2014. I did not see the original. Everyone says the original was better, so I have to put that on my <laughs> yeah. to, to view list. Um, but uh, my own view on this is that automated drones, as opposed to the ones we have right now, which have an operator are not so much worse than what we have right now. And the reason is that the algorithms that will be used by these ro robotic drones will be conceived by human beings. So basically the same people who are right now saying, oh, oh yes, these are the rules of engagement, signature strikes, it's okay for you to take out these people because they're located in this area we've designated as hostile and they have behaviors which match a disposition matrix that we associate with terrorists. So th those people will be the same ones who write the algorithms right for the the robot. So I don't think it's it's necessarily much worse. The the one concern that people have is the maybe random electron effect where suddenly the robots go crazy and they're not they're not functioning rationally but it's some sort of breakdown in the machinery and they go slaughter all these people that they shouldn't have and then the question is who's responsible richard jackson brought this question up yesterday um, and that's a good one but i think that there's already a question of who's responsible um, in these cases you know when they um, use drones and take out a wedding or they take out a Bedouin camp or they take out um, Mama Nabibi a 68 year old grandmother who is picking okra in a large field all alone um, who's responsible for these um, atrocities and it looks like no one's really taking responsibility now so it's not gonna it's not the responsibility question is not necessarily not necessarily going to change much with the um, automated systems because they already don't seem to be taking any responsibility they aren't they aren't replying to um, demands on the part of Amnesty International and other groups to explain what happened for example in the case of Mama Nabibi some people believe that the algorithms uh, could turn out to be more moral than human beings or could be written to be more moral than well they certainly beings. could be more moral than the ones that are being used right now right because it looks like racial profiling to me um, basically these people often look a lot like Osama bin Laden they dress like him and they may even hate the United States or the United States government but it's it's a case of ro racial profiling whenever you don't know the person's name and so you cannot he's not been connected to any actual crime and he's supposedly uh, potentially dangerous right he poses an imminent threat where imminent threat has been redefined to exclude immediacy so an imminent threat according to the um, Obama administration no longer has to be an immediate threat which means that these men are said to be potential future threats and the reason is circumstantial and hearsay and and so it looks like um, it's it's got to be racial profiling, right? You're doing it in third world countries where these sorts of people live. And I don't know any other way of looking at it. When it's so clear that, um, you know, any unjust lethal strike um, is counterproductive in terms of turning the population mm -hmm. against the operation, why do you think it's being applied so widely and so indiscriminately to people that are clearly not such a threat? I mean, our, 
you know, are people just trigger happy? Is there a certain number of hellfires that need to be shot in any given month, or are they are they trying to meet quotas? Why they are trying to 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 meet quotas, and I have a chapter on this. It's called Lethal Creep, and so why is it that we we keep doing this? You know, we we got rid of Osama bin Laden. Um, and so why do we still have these programs running? Um, and I, I think part of it is institutional. You have institutional homogenization within these organizations. And the people who rise in these organizations have uh, signed on to the party line. They've been doing this for a long time. So now that they've been doing it, they feel like it has to be good, so they want to do it more. If, you, if you've convinced yourself that it's something good, then you want to do it more, and, and it starts spreading. And it just becomes... Uh, it becomes the standard operating procedure because it's politic politically palatable. Politicians support this, right? Even uh, uh, Bernie Sanders said that he'll continue in the Obama tradition with drone assassination. I'm like, please, read my book. <laughs> did he really say that? That's he did say yeah. that. Yeah, you know, I was trying to decide who Feel to Feel the burn <laughs> of the Hellfire missile. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, this. you know, he, yeah, he's, he's busy, you know, he has other priorities we might say but uh that the fact that he would say that shows that he like most americans gets their understanding of of the program from the headlines the headlines say oh suspected militants killed and success it's like, success exactly <laughs> and i think now when people read the headlines they don't even see the word suspected it's like they elide it from their mind so they read the headlines as suspected militants killed they assume oh some some more dead terrorists good goodbye mm. and good yeah, riddance and i don't think people either really imagine what, what it's like to be at a wedding and the idea that a drone could be flying overhead that could waste you at any second it's frightening. Put their, their it's frightening, and the the press, the mainstream media, never covers that side of the story. The only way you get that side of the story is if you're Jeremy Scahill, incredibly courageous, and go over there and talk to people, or you read the NGO reports and the human rights reports mm. um, written by other people who have gone there and been on the ground. Um, but those re those reports, you have to make an effort to find them, mm. and you have to be you have to have been given some reason to go look for them whereas most people are pretty happy with their new york times headlines and they you know okay great mm. you know obama's not waging another boots on the ground war good good save our troops oh i was just gonna ask something that may be kind of beyond the scope of your book okay um i read um recently kind of researching for this interview in the atlantic about a drone operator yes and the guy goes into wherever it is palm beach florida and he has a coffee he sits in front of a computer and he just really, like, like we're doing, pushing buttons and people get blown up. Right. Do you see any sort of long-term damage to, like, those people's psyches or the psyches of the, our country, like, as our country, America, as this continues? Because I don't think it's healthy to just push buttons and blow people up. Well, you're right. And, in fact, it's already been documented. Mm. Um, we've discovered, to everyone's surprise, that these operators suffer PTSD at, mm. at similar levels to combat soldiers on the ground. Now, why is this so fascinating? Because we used to think that PTSD primarily had to do with fear of death. Well, these guys are not risking their lives. As you said, they're sitting in a trailer, pushing buttons, drinking their coffee. Mm. And uh, so what's the explanation for their PTSD? It has to be that what they're doing is weighing on them psychologically, morally, I would say. You know, it's, it's, it's bearing down on their conscience, and they're asking themselves, what am I doing? They've been following orders just as though they were regular soldiers, but the, the reason for following orders unflinchingly 
um, has dropped out of the picture in, in drone killing. It's no longer the case that if you don't do what you're told to do, you might endanger all of your buddies because there are no buddies to be endangered. So basically you're following orders because some analyst has said, today's the day we're going to take this guy out. So you do it without questioning because that's the soldierly station. You, you follow orders. But it's a strange um, position for these operators to be in because they recognize that what they're seeing is a silhouette and they're being told to kill this person, but they don't, you can't see everything on the screen. You can't see the reality of the intentions in these people's mind. Do they really have any intention to harm the people of the United States? And for some of these operators, it becomes more and more difficult to do as they uh, as questions arise in their mind. Um, one really good example is Brandon Bryant. He's been traveling around the world talking about this. He's an apostate drone operator. He just couldn't do it anymore. He stopped. And now he's going around um, explaining uh, the problems with what is going on. He's, I think, uh, had a lot of... Um, anger directed toward him for doing this among his former colleagues, uh, but he's doing it anyway because he feels like there's something really wrong with this and he really regrets the, I believe it is, 1,626 deaths to which he contributed, which is a lot. Yeah. And and so, just to clarify, I mean, the, the this type of PTSD is not being experienced by people playing video games. This is only by people who know that the people they're actually killing on screen are in fact human beings. Yes, yes. This is um, drone operators who have been diagnosed as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. No, I don't, to my knowledge, people who just play regular video games don't suffer. I mean, they may have other problems. Yeah. <laughs> ADHD or something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they don't suffer from PTSD. Yeah. Oh, so um, you actually asked about um, the long-term cultural yeah. effects. I also think that's a problem. I think that we have had an erosion of the sense of the sanctity of human life. Mm -hmm. um, right now, drone killing, it looks like it's being carried out as a first resort, not a last resort. Mm -hmm. um, we well, that's the name of my book. We kill because we can. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. why we're doing it. Just any situation that, you know, oh, we should just do it because we should just Well, do it. it's become a um, sort of like a... A jokeable meme, you know, like, oh, I'll get a drone strike on you if you don't watch out. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. well, Barack Obama. Even Obama, yeah. Exactly. You, line. Yeah. Yeah. In the White House Correspondents' Dinner or something. Yes, that's yeah. right. And it was appalling to people who have been affected <laughs> by drones. Yeah. Or, yeah, the drones now um, are like a toy. They're very popular. I listen to radio back home and yeah. people um, buy drones and fly them. And that's sort of a way of making it a commodity. Not realizing that drones are weapons and other... I guess it's like the same as toy guns, though, maybe. I think they, they, I think they can all be weaponized. I'm waiting for the mafia to start weaponizing hobby yeah. drones. Why not? I mean, it's... Uh, now that they've seen that it can be done. Yeah. yeah. Um, Easily. Well, that's a, that kind of leads into the next question. What do you think is the future? Like, how long are we away from... Um, I don't want to say... I always say China is the baddie. That's not fair, maybe. Like, from Fiji droning you know somewhere in america or nigeria or new zealand some dissident in new zealand you know the fiji government but the the thing yeah i, I mean related to that question is you know how long are we going to continue to see 
drone strikes conducted by one nation state on the territory of another because at the moment it seems like it can only really occur in failed states where there's sort of no effective government, therefore no repercussions in international law, basically an act of war theater, whereas the emerging nations that are using it are doing it within their own territory on their own population, right. which of course is much easier because the only laws they have to contend with are their own, Yes, um, which seems seems to me to say uh, we've come full circle. The Israeli example is what we're likely to see more of in the future is governments using drones against their own population and maybe in um, declared war with one another, but being able to strike some other uh, person in a faraway nation um, would necessarily almost require the consent of that nation or it would become an international incident. Right. Unless, of course, there's intelligence cooperation and you can get that nation to strike your citizen in their own country. Yes, that's right. Um, what has happened up until now is the scenario you described where the strikes are being carried out in failed states where there is no central government authority to talk to and to get permission from, or in places such as Yemen where there was until recently a central government authority which cooperated fully with the United States or Pakistan. and Pakistan also, allowing them to operate freely on their own sovereign soil and kill whomever they wanted to kill. Uh, so. Will people be, will other countries be attempting drone strikes on the United States? Um, for that reason, no, because the United States will not grant them authority to do that. I don't believe that they would allow is Israel, for example, to um, carry out a drone strike on U.S. soil. If anyone attempted to, say some, you know, terrorists, for example. I am pretty confident that DARPA by now has developed capacities for defeating drone capacity because mm. otherwise they wouldn't be exporting them. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's my feeling on that. Now, the danger, as you can, I quickly ask, what is DARPA? Not, oh, sure, Defense Advanced Research it, Projects Agency. agency. Thank yeah. you. Okay, <laughs> DARPA. I'm it's basically <laughs> no, no, no. Basically, it's the nerve center of the military, industrial, media, con congressional, academic, pharmaceutical, logistics complex. Oh, wow. Okay. Can we join their headquarters? <laughs> uh, there's, it's in a way spread all over the place because DARPA grants are held by people all over the world. And they're you know, devising new and more efficient ways to kill people and also to defeat previous generations of weapons. Mm. Um, but coming back to your example of people, or sorry, governments taking out uh, their own citizens, it's, the re it's really just... Uh, a way of promoting tyranny, really. I mean, you have, you're going to have this taking place in countries which really need to be democratized, but they can't be because they, the, the central government will have this capacity to squelch dissent. Mm. Um, you just call Opposition your... Opposition politicians. Exactly. You, yeah. call, you call your political enemy a terrorist, and then their history, right? That's what's going to happen in these contexts. Yeah. So it's really horrible for democracy um, in, in the long range, because it gives the central government authority a power which is identical to the power of tyrants of the past. It's identical. I have a chapter actually called Tyrants Are As Tyrants Do. So if you, if you summarily execute your own citizens, no matter what kind of government you claim to have, you're a tyrant. Mm. So. By definition. <laughs> yeah. And is, is there some sort of appendix or is there a comprehensive list of countries 
with this technology or who have used it or um, I mean we've mentioned a few but Nigeria Pakistan Israel India UK US right there's got to be more well, I'm sure China has them. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Iraq obviously has them. I think they just got, got a yeah. big slew of them from the United States. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, pretty soon it's going to be the case who doesn't have them, right? right. Yeah. Um, because it's spreading around the world. Um, Tattoos. The floodgates have been flung open. So.